thinking about sheep today. As I was reading my Bible, it says that we're like all like sheep. I did a little Google deal on sheep. I'm very um I'm very nosy. Um, wild sheep don't have wool. They have hair and it's no good for anything. But sheep that have a shepherd, they grow wool. And it can be shaved and make clothes out of it and stuff like that. It's good stuff. But I found this stuff that you can get out of sheep wool when you shave it and then you put it through this press called lanolin. It's this anointing oil. It does um, healing, moisturizing, um, all kinds of good things. Lanolin oil. And um, the only way you can get the lanolin oil out is to shear the sheep. So a good shepherd's job is to shear the sheep at least once a year. Now, a good sheep's job, I guess, is try to avoid the shear. Because shearing's painful. It's vulnerable. We have to be exposed. It's, we might get nicked by the shear. Um, if you don't um, shear the sheep at least once a year, then the lanolin kind of stops producing because all the mud and the grime and the oil that develops in the wool throughout the year chokes off the cells and the spores, the, the pores where the lanolin is produced through the follicles of the wool. And then it stops repelling moisture. And when that happens, then a sheep will walk through like water or something. They come out, and instead of repelling the water, they get filled with water, and they can't walk very good. So they get burdened down with the things they're going through unless they're kind of sheared on a regular basis. Um. The lanolin oil is worth a lot more than the wool. But you can't get it unless the sheep is willing to be sheared. The anointing oil that is in a sheep is no good for anybody else as long as he's unwilling to be sheared. But if he's willing to be sheared, then his benefit that what is in him is being produced in him because of the way God created him can be used to touch lots and lots and lots of other people if he's willing to be sheared. Now, if you don't shear them, and then they start getting all matty, unsheared mothers can't nurse their babies because then they, they get hair and wool in their mouth and their digestive systems clog up and the little baby sheep die because they don't get good nourishment unless the mama's sheep or the older sheep in the flock are willing to be sheared on a regular basis. It's a pretty good sheep message. Um, and, and so um, maybe that's what this is about. Maybe we don't like being exposed. Maybe we don't like being sheared. But maybe it's the one thing we need for a revival to hit our church again. Maybe if all the Nazarenes would get sheared, it would release the anointing. And maybe all the younger sheep would start getting fed because everything they're needing is locked up in us 
unless we're willing to become vulnerable. Amen. Now, I also found this out, that the greatest crop of lanolin is always produced when the sheep have had to do the most exertion or energy or go through the most trials, led by a shepherd, but like the most climbing, the most inclement weather, the most pressure, the more they go through in that year, the greater the harvest of lanolin anointing oil. Sheep. Who would have thunked it? I want God to release the anointing that he's put in all of us so that everybody in the room can benefit. Amen? So I feel weak tonight. I don't know why. I don't feel weak physically. I feel tired spiritually. I'm trying to discern the spirit. Um, I think I'm going to have to preach myself up into faith. I have a tendency of enjoying that. But I miss my family. I miss my babies tonight really bad. I got a, I got a Facebook this morning, well, a text from Mackenzie Nicole. She's, um, she's 20 days old. I've never seen her, except on my phone. She said, I love you, Papa. I can't wait to meet you. She only lives in California. So I'm missing my family tonight. I feel weak, so I think that I'm going to operate from a posture of weakness. I think that's probably the best way to operate. Because when we're weak, it gives him a chance to do what he wants to do, right? Um, I think I would like to preach on faith. I was going to preach another message tonight, but God changed me as we were worshiping. And he can do that because he's in charge. Um, I can't find a verse in the Bible that says... uh, According to your lack of faith, let it be done unto you. It's always according to your faith. Jesus gives us faith, and if we'll keep in intimate communication with him, our faith will grow. Without faith, we cannot please him. So I want to talk tonight about faith. Um, I I want to start, I think, with Mark... Chapter 6. Let's start with Mark chapter 6. Let's just go through some faith verses. You know what I'd like to have, Brady? Um, That little black stand. Can I have that little black stand? Mark chapter 6. Let's start with with verse 1. I'm in the New King James Version. Mark chapter 6. Verse 1, then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when it was Sabbath or Sunday or church day, he began to teach in the church, the synagogue. 
And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? So I think this is an example um, of Jesus maybe in his hometown Nazarene church. Because he was a Nazarene. I said this last night, he wasn't a Baptist. That was John's guys. And he wasn't a Pentecostal. That was Paul's guys. He was a Nazarene. So in the context, this would be an example of Jesus being like in his hometown Nazarene church on the northeast Indiana district. <laughs> his, his disciples, his buddies, the people that know him, right? And he's preaching. And the people are listening to his words. Because, so, you know, this is unbelievable. Because I'm going to say this. Till I die, probably. I believe that the foundation of our life is this. I mean, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't change. But I believe our life is in the voice. I think the foundation is the written word, but our life is in the voice. We don't live on bread alone, but on every word. Matthew 4.4, 4, Deuteronomy 8.3, it's, it's every word. We live by every word. And, and so when Jesus was speaking, this is amazing to me because it says in John 6:63, Jesus says, the words that I speak are spirit and life. So when Jesus speaks, it's all spirit because Jesus said in John chapter 8, I only speak what I hear my father say. So every word that Jesus spoke originated in heaven. So when he releases the heavenly words, it's releasing spirit because the atmosphere of heaven is spirit. So every time Jesus speaks, it's a cascade of the kingdom of heaven. It's the spirit. Are you with me now? Listen to me. John 6:63 in red letters, Jesus says, "The words that I speak are spirit and life." Now that's important. It's just, just it's a very important concept. Because it says in Romans 14:17 that the kingdom of God is not a matter of meat and drink, but it is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus releases spirit, every time he speaks, he's releasing the kingdom, because the kingdom's in the spirit. Now what's significant about that? Because if you need forgiveness of sins, it's only possible in the kingdom. If you need cleansing of an of a carnality problem. It's only possible in the kingdom. If you need healing of a physical problem, it's not possible except for in the kingdom. If you need deliverance from demonic oppression or depression or any kind of affliction, it's only possible in the kingdom. So when Jesus speaks, it releases kingdom. And if we're full of the same spirit that Jesus is full of, every time we speak, it should release the kingdom. In fact, we should be so full of the spirit that no matter where we go, when we release our words, which shouldn't be ours, they should be his words. It should release the spirit, which should release the kingdom. So it's no longer Northeast Indiana District Revival at Grace Point, but it becomes one of the outposts of the kingdom of God. Jesus is doing that. With his hometown boys, he's releasing the kingdom. They're in awe of his words. They're astonished. They're saying, man, where did this guy get these things? How's he doing these miracles? This is amazing. So it's an atmosphere of honor. It's an atmosphere of expectancy. 
It's an atmosphere of adoration. It's an atmosphere of what's going to happen next. And then one person pipes up. I know this guy. I know his dad. I know his sisters. He's the son of a carpenter. And the atmosphere goes from honor and expectancy and kingdom to familiarity and Nazarendom. I know that guy. I already know what he's going to do. I know what time church is getting out. We have a bulletin. We've got it planned ahead. And we go from honor and expectancy to familiarity and religion. And one person's comment can change the whole thing. It's kind of scary, isn't it? Jesus, is this not the carpenter's son of Mary, the brother of James, Hosea, Judas, Simeon, Simon, are not his sisters here with us? So instead of being in astonishment, they're offended at him. And Jesus says to them, a prophet is not without honor. Except, of course, in his, his hometown Nazarene church. Isn't this interesting? And he could do no mighty works there except lay his hands on a few sick people. That word sick, it's the word comatose. Jesus' hometown church, the only people that got help were the people that were too sick not to have faith. Comatose people usually don't even go to church. They're waiting at home for somebody to come visit them. And look at this verse 8. It says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled. That's, that's, the, word, that's the Greek word, thomazo, th- thomazo, I guess, T-H-O-U-M-A-D-Z-O, tho, thomazo. It means astonished, taken back, blown away, amazed, marveled. At their lack of faith. So, in the New Testament, now I know this isn't everything Jesus said, but there's not enough paper to write down everything he did and said. But what he said got ink, it's probably worth taking note of. This is what he said. The only time Jesus ever uses the word tomazo is when he's talking about faith or faithlessness. The only thing that amazes and astonishes and blows Jesus away, positively or negatively, is faith or faithlessness. He's not impressed by talent. He's not impressed by work ethic. He's not impressed by skill set or money or pedigree. He is blown away by someone's faith or lack of it. The only time he ever uses the word tomazo is when he's dealing with the subject of faith. In this case, in his hometown Nazarene church, he's used the word tomazo because of their lack of faith. A lot of times it's easier for God to do miracles outside the church than it is inside. Because outside the church people are desperate and they need something to happen. Inside the church we're familiar and we already know what's going to happen. The 
the crowd's getting a little thinner tonight. Maybe by tomorrow night we can just have a real cozy church right in these two sections here. <laughs> Praise God. So that's the negative kind of thamazo. Okay, now let's, let's look at the positive kind. Look at, turn to Matthew uh, chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Let's look at the positive side of amazing faith. Now look at this. Is, now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, this is Matthew 8 verse 5. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him. Now this isn't a Jew, Nazarene, Jew. This isn't a Jew. This is an outsider. This is a, this is a Roman, right? Underneath like Socrates and Aristotelian teaching philosophy. He's underneath Judeo teaching. He's an outsider. He's an outsider. So he wouldn't be a Nazarene. I would say he's like a Mormon because he has 100 employees. He has a lot of money. Just play with me. <laughs> Saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, okay, I'll come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, no, no, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. So I'm very curious about that, aren't you? If Jesus says he'll come and heal the person in your family or your servant or somebody who needs help, and you don't want him to come to your house, what is it, guilt? Is there shame? Are there secrets? Is your refrigerator full of beer? Is there a bunch of stuff on your computer? Are there things under the bed? Are there things in the attic? What is it that would not want you to have Jesus come to your house? The only reason I'm saying that is because Jesus responds to this guy's faith even though his heart isn't comfortable in the presence of Jesus. I want to make a note here. Jesus doesn't always respond to trouble. He doesn't always respond to disaster. He doesn't always respond to pain. But he always responds to desperate faith. He always responds to desperate faith. So this, this centurion says, no, 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 I'm not worthy. Don't come to my house. I'm a man under authority just like you, Jesus. I tell this one go and he goes, and this one come and he comes. I tell this one to do that and he does it, and to do this and he does it. And when Jesus heard it, he thamazoed. He was astonished. He was amazed. He was taken back. He was blown away. He said, I haven't found faith like that anywhere in my hometown church. And the man got what he wanted because his faith amazed Jesus. Is that amazing? The outsider had the kind of faith that amazed Jesus positively. The insiders had the kind of faith that amazed Jesus negatively. I want to amaze him. I don't think there's any middle ground. I don't think you can hover between the two. I think right now he's looking at this room. He's amazed. I hope it's the right way. I mean, individually and corporately, he's looking at us, and he's either saying, wow, they, they believe, or wow. There's no middle ground. We're either moving towards or falling behind. There's no way to hover in faith. We're either growing in faith or growing weary in well-doing. There's no middle ground. Turn to Mark chapter 9. 
Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verse 21. Mark chapter 9, verse 21. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) If someone would look to Jesus and say, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Now, huh? Jesus didn't respond to the problem. He responded with a question, will you have faith? If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Now, this is kind of a scary verse if you really look at what it's saying. Because it puts you in the realm of almost being like Jesus. Because if we could believe, all is the word pos, which means all. If you could believe just in Jesus, not not plan C or D, but only plan. If we can believe in Jesus, if you can pisteo, 100% faith in me is what he's saying. All things are possible to him who will do that. All things. Yep, it's in red. I just can't stand it. I can't stand red verses. They made a printing error. So, look at this. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said to him with tears. Now, this guy can't be a Nazarene because he's emotional. He's crying. He has tears. Um, and it's immediate. There's no, just as I am, four verses. It's just like... Wow! I mean, immediately he's crying with tears. He's emotional. He's an emotional wreck. Immediately. He's a charismatic. He has to be. He has to be. Okay? They're emotional. Cried out with tears, Lord, Kyrios, anointed one, I believe, Pisteo, I do, but help my unbelief. I believe, but I don't. I amaze you, but I amaze you. Are you with me, church? Um, Listen to this. I believe that your kingdom and your word is true, but my uh, my wife died, my son died, my granddaughter died, my my best friend died. I believe that you're a healer, but the doctor said this. I believe that you're my provider, but the boss said this. I, I believe, I believe that you're my sustainer and you're my peace, but the counselor said this. I believe in the kingdom of God, but I'm stuck here in Fort Wayne. That's where we live. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's just where we live. You know why we don't see a church in American Christianity like the book of Acts? Because we're always starting over. Something bad happens, we lose our faith. Church splits. People get bitter. People get hurt. They stop believing. The morale drops. We buy into men's programs. And then somewhere along the line, somebody gets baptized in the Spirit again and brings the Word back. And we have to start over. And we've been starting over for 2,000 years. We just keep starting over. We don't live in belief. We live in this. He says, I believe help. There's three Greek words for help. This is the word boetheo. This is what it means. Jesus, I've tried to stay in faith, but I keep waffling. I keep looking at circumstances instead of you. I need you, Jesus, to come to me in my weakness and pick me up and plant me in faith because I can't do it without you. I need you to come to my rescue and plant me in faith. I believe help my unbelief, which is which is the word apatos, which is the word, well, it's where we would get our word apathy. Unbelief leads to apathy. Because if we stop believing, then we just start saying, well, this is just as good as it's going to get, so let's just stay moral enough to get to heaven. Because if we try too hard, we'll just get tired, and we'll get perplexed, and we'll get weary, and people will get on our nerves. So let's just settle. Let's don't live the life of faith that draws the kingdom of heaven to earth. Let's just live the life of faith good enough to get from earth to heaven. I believe, help my unbelief, with passion. In the book of Acts, the first 35, 40 years of Christians, they didn't take Christianity off after Sundays or Wednesdays. It was a 24-7 proposition. They couldn't kick back and watch their favorite game. or I mean, it was their life. If you're a Christian, it's your life. Look up at the top of the page here, verse 18. Look at verse 18. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. There's red letters now. And he said to, and he answered the father and said, oh, oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Now that word, oh, is the Greek vocative. And pastors would know what that is. But in the Greek language, there's not exclamation points. There's these vocatives that they identify passion or they identify the mood. And this word, oh, if you want to translate that vocative from Greek into English, would be best translated as the word wow. So when you see an oh right here, what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, wow! I gave you my authority. I gave you my power. I gave you my, my presence. I told you to do what I'm doing and you won't do it. Wow! So not only do we have a positive and a negative amazement, but there's a positive and a negative wowing factor too. 
Amen. Turn me to Matthew 15. Let's look at a positive wow. Matthew 15. Matthew 15. I'll start with like verse 21. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. This is not a good region. This would not be like Ohio, Indiana, the Nazarene Belt. This would be more like Alaska or Hawaii. This is out there. There's not a church on every block. There's a church in every region. It's just kind of hard. And behold, a woman of Canaan, another outsider, came from that region and cried out to him. Okay, here's some more emotional people. She cried out to him. I think we might learn tonight that God likes emotion. I don't think he's impressed with this. I don't think he's impressed that we're in church. I don't think he's impressed that we're in the seats every night of revival. I think he's looking for some desperation. I think he's looking for some passion. Isaiah 58, 9, we can pray and God will answer, but if we'll cry out, he'll show up. I would like him to walk in here. So, so, so look at this. Behold, a woman of Canaan came to him and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. So she uses that rabbinic phrase, which is she knows that he is in the lineage of David. He is the Lord. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Now, this word severely means that she is possessed to a point that she even has a lot of physical conditions because of the possession. It's not just affecting her emotionally, but she's sick physically because there's so much demon possession. She's crying out to Jesus. Now, Jesus ignores her. Now, remember, Jesus is perfect theology. He is um, he's the perfect Nazarene. He is the perfect picture of what we should look like if we're sanctified. And a lot of times, to be Christ-like isn't to jump at the problem. A lot of times, somebody needs to let somebody die so you can resurrect them instead of throwing them a lifeline and letting them limp along in their dead state. So, 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 so look at this. He doesn't answer her. Um, if you read this story, the same exact stories, I think, in Mark chapter 7. In that one, it says he tried to hide from her. Now, I don't think we hide. I don't think God hides from us. I think he hides for us. I think God hides so we'll get desperate. I think one of the greatest blessings that God can do for a person that's in the church is to withdraw his presence so we actually want him again. I think one of the greatest treasures that God gives us is he withdraws to a place where our heart is looking for him again and we're in passionate pursuit of him again because we don't want to lose that intimate feeling of oneness with our Savior. And sometimes he realizes when we enter this culture of familiarity and it makes him sick because he hates religion. So sometimes he has to leave the church, so we'll actually want him to come back to the church. 
He'll let us go through our programs. He'll let us go through our religious activities and our religious rituals. But it's not until we get desperate and cry out that he'll actually want to come back. Are you with me? So, he answered her not a word. And then the disciples came to him. Look at this. The disciples came to him and urged him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps crying out after us. She keeps crying out after us. Can can you imagine Peter? You know, he's like the associate pastor. Jesus, she's not one of us. She's emotional. Her makeup's running. She's loud. This word crying out is a word like screeching. She's screeching like a bird. She's interrupting our service. We can't get our songs in. We cannot get our sermon done. She is wrecking our Nazarene service, Jesus. It's like she thinks we can stop everything and let her get deliverance. She keeps crying out. Oh, this is so interesting. I I think the only thing that stops God is desperate faith. I, I, I think about... Okay, um, there, there's the woman with the issue of blood. You know, it's in all three synoptics. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus is walking through the crowd. Everybody's touching him, right? They're all touching him because it's a big crowd. And one woman touches the prayer shawl, the, the, the blue little tassel, just boop, and she stops Jesus. She stops him. He's work, working his way through the crowd on the way to Jairus' house because Jairus' daughter is ill. On the way to Jairus' house, a woman touches him, and she stops him. Her desperate faith stopped God. Now, it says in Psalms 37, 9, those who wait on the Lord, and that word wait can be translated, those who lay a trap, lay a snare, draw one in. I think the woman in Luke chapter 8 laid a trap for the anointing that the anointing couldn't resist. Jesus didn't even know who it was until he turned around and stopped. But she knew who he was. And he had power. And she touched him. And it stopped God. And he didn't leave her where she was. He took her with him where he was going. In Mark chapter 10, there's a story about that blind Bartimaeus. Remember, he's heard about Jesus, and he wants to see. And the people say, well, Jesus is right over there. And so he screams at the top of his lungs, son of David, have mercy on me. And the associate pastor comes over and says, we don't scream at church. We're not emotional. We're not desperate like that. He'll make an appointment. And after that guy gets done trying to calm him down, he screams louder. (laughs) And the second time he screamed, it stopped Jesus' service. And Jesus came to where he was. If you pray, he'll answer. If you cry out, he'll show up. So Jesus comes to this guy and says, what do you want? I want to see your faith has made you whole. I think desperate faith stops God. I said this up in Elkhart. I'm going to say it here. 
I think that, 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 that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I think Daniel's faith stopped the lion. I think Jesus is the son of righteousness with healing in his wings, Malachi 4.2. And, and I think Joshua's faith stopped the sun. I think he is the river of life, John 7.38. I think the high priest in Joshua chapter 3 stopped the river. I think he is the sea of glass. And I think Moses' faith stopped the sea. You just go through the whole Bible. The only thing that ever stops God is desperate faith. 2 Chronicles 16.9 The eyes of the Lord are roaming to and fro across the earth, looking to find someone whose heart is completely committed to him so he can show himself strong on their behalf. What is he looking for? A place to stop. Because the beauty is, when you draw him in and he stops because your faith draws him in, he doesn't leave you where you're at. He takes you where he's going with him. Amen. So look at this woman here. Um, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. And he answered her not a word. The disciples came and said, you've got to get rid of her. She's too loud. And then he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So look at this. He says to her, I, I know I'm ignoring you, but it's not your turn yet. You're a Gentile. Your turn's in ten years. It'll happen in a house called Cornelius' house. It's not your turn yet. You're messing up my plan. You're a Gentile. I came for the Jews. There's a window if they don't believe, then it'll be your turn. But it's not your turn yet. Did you see that? Now, now look, at, look at this. Since she says, okay, I think I'll worship. So he gives her the silent treatment, and then he says, it's not your turn. And her response is, I'm going to persukane. I'm going to persukane. You know what that is? That's a person that gets on the ground and licks the hand of their master like a dog would lick the hand of his master. That's what it means. Persukane is to lay flat out in front of your master, and the master puts the hand down, and you lick the hand of your master like a dog. That's what she's doing to Jesus. Now look at Jesus' response. But he answered and said, wait a minute, I can't stand this. I cannot take the children's bread and throw it to little dogs. She started to tug on his heart. And she said, yes, Lord, but even little dogs eat the crumbs, the morsels. You know what? If you get low enough and desperate enough, one crumb will, will be enough. To the people that are full of the things of the world, even sweet things don't sound good. But to people that are empty and hungry for God, even bitter things taste good. She's on the ground acting like a dog. And Jesus says, come on, I can't. And she says, I just need a crumb. Now look at the Jesus' response in verse 28. Then Jesus answered her and said, wow. Wow. Great is your faith. You can have anything you desire. 
ahead of your dispensation. Now, this is, a, this is an example of wowing faith that got something ten years ahead of her time. And I don't think Jesus has changed. I think we could amaze him and wow him and get something out of the millennium. He hadn't changed. We have. We've become familiar. We've become comfortable and religious and orderly and structured and balanced and She said, well, Brother Dan, how can you say that? We're at church. It's pretty quiet. It's pretty quiet. He said, well, Brother Dan, now, okay, I, I, I see your point. We can amaze him, we can wow him. Um, we can amaze him, we can wow him. Okay, I understand. How, how fast... How fast can we go from the two amazements and the two wows? Well, I think instant. You know, when he was going to Jairus' house and the lady stopped him and then the servant came back and says, don't bother the teacher, it's too late. And Jesus immediately said, don't be afraid. Believe. Because Jairus went from faith to fear instantly. I believe Amen. So how do we stay in faith that amazes and wows God? Um, it, it, it says in Hebrews 11, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen. Hypostasis, the foundation, the substance the, of what you can't see. Paul says what you can see is temporary. What you can't see is eternal. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 12, God said to Jeremiah, Son of man, tell me what you see. What do you see? Well, I see Aaron's rod. And it's budding and now it's blossoming and that's good enough. You've seen well. You can ask me for anything now. I'm ready to perform my word because your faith has become sight. It's no longer theory. It's reality. Remember Joshua? Joshua has been um, following Moses around for 40 years. Now Moses is dead. It's Joshua's turn. There's this big city, big walls. What do I do? And the angel of the Lord comes to Joshua. Stand with me, Brady. Stand up here with me. And the, I'm the angel of the Lord. This is Joshua. Angels are bigger than people. <laughs> you never knew you had such a small, thin pastor, did you? This is what the angel says to Joshua. He says, see, see, haven't I given it unto you? Faith is seeing it before it happens. See? Haven't I given it unto you? And then he got it because he saw it by faith. Are you with me here, church? Remember Elisha? Remember Elisha and his little underling? 
in the school of the prophets, which is what we should be. That's where we've missed it. We've tried to analyze it and put it in a box where it's all controllable instead of letting God rip the box open. If we were a school of prophets, then we could see that there are a lot more for us than are against us. We would have a vision if we had to rely on God because we weren't doing things we could do without him. We would only be doing things we can do with him. Are you with me? So faith is the substance. I hate that word. But faith is reality. Now it says in Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand. So you have to have some faith to believe there is faith. You can't even believe in faith without faith. But this, this is the point. Um, seeing what's unseen. In, in Hebrews 11.27, it says that Moses forsook Pharaoh because he saw him. As even though he was invisible. By faith, Moses saw the Christ. Centuries before he came to earth as a man. Are you, are you kidding? Okay, let's go back farther to Job. Chapter 19. I know my Redeemer lives. Because I see him standing By faith, they saw the unseen Christ. That's why he told Thomas, Blessed are you who believe you've seen, but more blessed are those who believe who haven't. Are you with me, church? So, so how do we live this faith? It is, it's wrapped up in this verse. Hebrews 12.2 Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Looking unto Jesus, the originator, the perfecter of our faith. Looking unto Jesus. Not the waves. Jesus. This is what we've done. We've become wave watchers and turned into wave managers instead of wave surfers. There's been so many waves that have hit us as leaders in the church and leaders in our communities and leaders in our families that we have taken our eyes off of the one who lets us surf on the waves and we've tried to figure out a strategy of managing the waves so they don't have too much of an effect on us. Jesus says, one word to Pete, come. One word releases the kingdom. What's possible in the kingdom? Anything, even walking on water. So he's walking on water, looking at Jesus, looking unto Jesus. Waves. <laughs> Help. Oh, faithless one. Jesus in Matthew 14 says, Oh, wow. Peter, you were walking on the water, and you took your eyes off me for a second, and look. I mean, there's some exciting walks in the Bible, but I don't think any of them beat this. Can you imagine walking on the water? 
It wasn't cold. It wasn't icy. So look at this. Looking unto Jesus. This is the only time it's used in the whole New Testament. So whoever wrote it had to make up something. That's how important it is. Looking unto Jesus. Has two meanings. Um, Number one, what you look at sets your destination and your course and fuels your passion to get there. So what your eyes are fixed on, no matter how many detours and no matter how many setbacks and no how many interruptions, what your eyes are set on will be your compass, will be your true north, so to speak, spiritually. And whatever your eyes are set on, that's where you'll end up. That's the first meaning. This is the second meaning of that. Looking unto Jesus. This is the meaning. You can't do it like this. But I lost $15 million. But I'm not qualified. But I'm, I'm overweight. But I'm homesick. But I'm, I miss my babies. He won't do this. We have to. Well, I lost my spouse. The doctor said this. I don't. Well, the more I preach that I really believe the Bible, the more critics criticize me and they think I'm radical. (laughs) So this is just my opinion. I don't care if any of you want to do this. I'm never going to stop. If I lose my kids, if I lose my wife, if I lose my grandbabies, I've decided. (laughs) I'm just going to keep my eyes on him. Are you with me, church? I don't care what anybody else says or anybody else does. Until we get back to the book of Acts as normal church, we don't have no business looking anywhere else but Him. Until people are healed and people are delivered and our prayer lists stop getting so long and they start shrinking because He's walking in the building, then I don't want to look at the latest this or the latest that. I'm going to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus.
Praise God. Looking unto Jesus. We have to do it. When all darkness and all oppression and all fear are coming at you, you can choose to buy into the lies or to live in the gaze of the truth. Looking unto Jesus. Now, how do you do that? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Turn to First Peter, and we'll finish this lesson. First Peter. First Peter, chapter five. Verse 6, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. How do you live a life where you're not going back between faith and unfaith? Wow and negative wow. Amazement and negative amazement. How do we live a life focused on Jesus by being broken, by being desperate, by being humble, by never leaning on our own abilities or our own understanding, but keeping everything focused and leaning on Him. Stay broken. He knows, he knows the prideful from afar, but He likes to live in close proximity to the humble and broken. The broken and contrite heart, He will not despise Psalms 51:17 Isaiah 57:15 I am a God who dwells in high and lofty heavens and also in the broken and contrite in spirit Isaiah 66:2 I'll tell you whom I esteem those who tremble at my word and are humble in their heart How do we stay focused on Jesus by staying humble and desperate and broken for Him. Amen. Amen. How do you do that? The next verse shows you how. Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Casting. It's, it's this word, eparito. You know what it means? Keep casting. Keep casting. Your cares is the word merimah. It's a word for anxieties, burdens, distractions. It's, it's why the devil usually causes more grief on church nights or Sundays than any other time in the Christian's life. He brings distractions. He brings anxieties. He brings a text. He brings a phone call. He wants to get us distracted so our eyes are off of Jesus so we miss the experience. He, he, he can't touch us, but he can get us to look at him. He can't get to us unless he goes through Jesus. And what's the chances of that? But he can get us to look at him. And to stay humble and broken is to do this. I can't do this on my own, so I need to keep giving it to you. Well, I prayed last night to be sanctified. Good. If there's stuff you took on today, then it would be probably biblically okay to dump it back on him even tonight. Well, that would mean I look weak. Bingo. That's the whole point. Because when you're weak, his strength is made perfect. It's when you're strong that he doesn't even want to hang out with you because it, it, it repels him. He's drawn to weakness. Here's the problem. 
for so long, all of our pastors want to get together in their strengths and talk about numbers and dollars and square footage. And it repels the anointed one. If we would get together in our weaknesses and talk about our desperation and our brokenness and our neediness, he couldn't resist the room. He's drawn to that. Are you with me? He's drawn to needy, broken, desperate hearts. He's repelled by people that have it all together. Casting all your care upon Him. We weren't designed to carry distractions. We were designed to carry the glory. We're the temple. There was no room in the temple for the distraction corner. There was no closet in the temple for anxiety. There was bread. There was fire. There was anointing. There was incense. There was glory. There was manna. There was the word. There was the presence. There was no distraction in the temple. And we're the temple. And when you carry distractions, you take up space that was never designed to carry distractions. Galatians 6 2 says that we should carry each other's burdens so that we can fulfill the royal law of Christ or love. If we're busy carrying around all of our own burdens, how can we ever be like Jesus? You want to stay broken? You want to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus? Give him your junk. Give him your fears. Give him your anxiety. Give him your worries. Give him your fears. Give him the distractions. Give him your disappointments. I prayed, God, and what did you do? He wants you to give it to him. I prayed for ten years, God. Good, give it to him. Because he cares. He cares. He cares. The word cares is the word mellow. That's what it means. He has a deep vested interest in you. Because you're his property. He purchased you. Not with silver and gold. But with his blood. We are his investment. And he hates depreciating values. And when we carry distractions. When we carry worry. It tarnishes and depreciates his inheritance. And he won't have no part of it. Purchased us. We're His. We're not our own. He cares for us. Amen. Amen. Casting all your care upon Him. Because He cares for you. Now how do you do that? How do you do that? Don't you love it when the verses just line up? Well, you be sober and vigilant. Sober is the word nepho. You know what it means? Rest in the spirit. Let the waves hit you. Rest in the spirit. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Be sober. Be, be sober. Rest. Be vigilant. That's the word Gregorio. It means get your eyes off the enemy and <laughs> get him back on Jesus. 
get your eyes off the enemy and get them back on Jesus. Be sober and vigilant. Rest. God's got you. You're His. Whoever happens to you has to go through Him. Now, why do you have to do that? Because the devil, the devil, there are 17 words for devil in the Bible. This is one of the words. It's diabolos. Diabolos. It's a compound word that means to throw at continually, to penetrate. So this isn't even the devil's name. This is like his job description. His job description is to lure you out of your resting safe place in Jesus. What do you mean by that? In Colossians 3 it says we're hidden. We're hidden in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 2.6 we're seated with Jesus. In Psalms 91, we're sheltered by Jesus. In Hebrews 10, 20, we're behind the veil, which is Jesus' body. I mean, any way you look at it, Satan doesn't know where we're at. That's why he has to keep throwing so many arrows, because as long as we're hidden in Christ, he doesn't know where he's aiming. He doesn't know where our spiritual heart is. He knows where the ripple effects of our flesh is, but he doesn't know where our spirit man is. That's why he keeps throwing distractions. That's why he keeps throwing fiery thirsty dies. He keeps throwing these bombs. He keeps throwing these lies. He keeps throwing these accusations. He keeps throwing the fears. He keeps sending these bad reports. He keep, and, and eventually, when you, when you get tired of looking at Jesus and you say, I think I'll just go into the flesh just for a moment, and we poke our head out and we go, what would you say? And then he knows where you're at. We were never designed for a ground war. We were designed to launch big bombs from the heavenly realms. We can never win a ground war, but we can never lose the fight when God is the man of war. We can't win a ground war. We're not good enough. But we can never lose an artillery assault from the air because God never loses. Amen. Amen. You're his property. He loves you so much. Can I just do one more verse, then we'll go home? Is it okay? I've got four people shaking their heads yes. I'm, I'm going for it. I don't care. First John 5. Let's look at First John 5, 18. First John 5, 18. I'll start with 17, just so Nazarenes don't get worried. Um, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. I studied that. Wesley says that's sins of ignorance. Any sin that you know about leads to death. Things you don't know about, it's called sin, but it's sins improperly spoken. It's just ignorance. That's verse 17. But here's what I want to talk about is verse 18. It says, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. Now, now, check this out. We know is the word edu, E-I-D-O. We know. It's a verb that means to experience it because we see it. It's a condition that we experience, and we can examine it, but we can't know without the experience. In other words, we can know that we are born of God. And when you know that you're born of God, why would you ever want to sin? Why would you want to? Well, I just want to have a bad day. You, you wouldn't, if you knew, 
if you knew that God was protecting you and you had this umbrella of glory all around you and this fire within you, if you knew the painstaking efforts that he has gone to to preserve you blameless, why would you ever want to take a couple hours off and say, I think I'll ruin it for today so I can catch back up tomorrow? It, it, it says we know that whoever is born, that's the word geneo, we're generated. It's, it's to make new by procreation. This, this word of God, it's 1 John 3, I think 9, it says that the word of God, the seed of God, it won't let you sin. It's the seed, it's the spermata. It's the ability of God's word to impregnate you with his life. You can know that you're born of God, that you are a new creation. You can know that. Aren't you glad? We, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. That's harmatia. That's missed the mark. I, I don't like that definition. It's kind of dumb. But that's my opinion. If I know what Jesus has done because I'm keeping my eyes on him, why would I ever want to settle for anything but my best to stay in close proximity to him? Why would, I ever even, why would I ever even consider getting on the edge? If I know, I'm going to stay dead on. Are you with me here? Now, now we're almost done. Here's the last verse, and we're going home to eat pizza, whatever you're going to do tonight. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God, speaking of Jesus... Keeps himself, keeps him, keeps is the word terero. Now this is interesting. If you're born of God, this word terero, it implies a full military line or a garrison or a battalion or a fortress. This is what it implies. God doesn't send one angel or two angels he has a full military line assigned to keep you from the enemy's harm. When you know by experience, because you not only had a prayer, but you can see the life change in yourself, that you couldn't do it, so you know it's him. When you know that you've been born of another seed, not the seed of a man, but the seed of a God. When you know that you're born of God, you, you know that because... Not only do you know you have new life, but you have this power around you that keeps the enemy from stealing the life. God sends a fortress. He, he builds a wall. He builds a, a castle. He has centurions lighting your life. Why? Because you're his property. He said, you believe in eternal security? Almost. I'm going to tell you this much. If we realized how hard Jesus is fighting to keep us, we would want to fight to keep him. Amen. If we realized the price that he paid and is paying, not only paid, but he's paying tonight, we would never drop our guard. We wouldn't care what hit us. 
we would keep our eyes on the one who's keeping us. Amen. Jesus keeps him. It's the same thing in Jude. It keeps him from stumbling. It's the same thing that in 2 Peter 1.10, you'll never stumble. He keeps you. It's the same thing in 1 Thessalonians. He, he preserves. He keeps. He guards. He protects. He, he places a whole battalion of his warriors around every one of his kids' hearts because he doesn't want to lose one of us. He's kind of he's prideful about that. He, in his last prayer before he went to the garden, he said, Father, I haven't lost one of them, and I don't like losing any of them, and he doesn't like losing any of us now. And so he's fighting hard tonight to let us know that no matter what you may be facing, no matter what you're going through, he's got a wall. He's got a battalion on call, on assignment. And there's not one thing the devil can do to get through it until we say, what'd you say? Keeps him from the evil one. This is so funny. The word there in the original language, it, it, it really boils down to this. Either God's our handler or Satan's our handler, and the choice is up to us. God handles us, or we get out of his protection, then Satan handles us. I like God's handling better. I want to pray for sick people tomorrow night. I want to pray for people that are demonly oppressed. I want to pray for depressed people. I want to pray for supernatural breakthrough in the Northeast Indiana District Amen. where a service could take off and no preacher, no DS, no evangelist would be mentioned, just God. Amen. Come back hungry. Come back desperate. Come back with your eyes fixed on Him and be willing to do whatever He says. You're dismissed.